everybody, this is Nuro with Olive Oil and Time. I'm coming to you guys from Jerusalem, sitting here in the Grassroots El Quds office with Feruz Chakawi. We're here to discuss how NGOs are operating in Palestine, the damage it's doing to our local economy here, and how their organization is actively trying to create new models to disrupt this method of minimizing and constricting the local economy and to allow more freedom in the way that individuals are organizing themselves politically and economically here. So, Beirut, welcome. Hello, hi everybody. I, uh, my name is Fairuz Sharqawi and I am the Community Mobilization Coordinator at Grassroots Jerusalem, a Palestinian organization with the main mission of contributing to the creation of a Palestinian long-term strategy for Jerusalem. We feel as Jerusalemite Palestinians that the way things are going today, the political situation in Palestine and Jerusalem specifically, it seems like everybody has a say about the future of our city except for us, the Palestinians in it. So our uh, goal is to help create and implement a Palestinian long-term plan for Jerusalem. So before we get started, would you be able to give us a little background on the structure of NGOs and how they're operating here in Palestine? Civil society organizations in in Palestine, just like many other colonized or formerly colonized countries around the world, work within the very classic structure of funding. They receive grants from donors. Usually these grants come with a political agenda attached to them. These grants reflect the vision and the perception of the donor on what these civil society organizations should be doing, what they should be spending that money on. So the funding in its classic way does not help the Palestinian organizations implement their own visions because they usually have to fit the donor agenda in order to receive that funding. So most funding that exists today in the international aid system nowadays comes in a top-down manner and also project-based manner. Top-down meaning dictated agendas. When money comes to fund organizations, usually the donor thinks that they can impose their own political agenda, impose the type of activism, the type of work that is being done. Usually here in Palestine, it feels like the white Western donors come here, give the money, thinking that they know better than us what's good for us. They know better than Palestinians what Palestinian liberation should look like. They know better what development and advocacy for Palestinian communities should look like. And they come and fund only work that fits that agenda. And that is a problem because usually the agenda of donors are different from the agenda that the people on the ground have. We have different perception of things. We have our own vision. And the dictated agendas mean that we do not 
follow our own vision and our own agenda. We, we always have as Palestinian organizations to change our identity, the nature of our work when applying for grants, then we have to fit the call for applications. We have to fit the criteria that the donor um, imposes. And so our work changes from one application to the other to fit those different agendas. And usually none of these applications reflects 100% what our work is really uh, on the ground or what our goal and vision is. And so it's a limiting process. It's a big problem taken into consideration that there is a people here with a struggle for liberation, self-determination, to be free to determine our future as a people. We cannot even do it as civil society organizations. So it's a it's very symbolic, the connection between the, the imposed agendas on organizations and the imposed agenda, for example, on the Palestinian people when it comes to, so what's the process, what's the toolbox that we need to be uh, using in order to liberate ourselves? Also, a lot of times um, these NGOs are restricting our political identities and the politicization of our movements here. In your experiences organizing in this city, how how is it that we can be taking these programs or funding from these foreign bodies that are depoliticized and applying that, bringing our youth into these programs, bringing our community members into these programs? Like, how is that actually affecting our liberation efforts here when it is political just to breathe in this country, but we're not allowed to talk about how that's political? Uh, through these NGOs and the work that they're trying to impose on us? Mostly both international NGOs, including United Nations agencies and donors that fund NGO work here by civil society in Palestine, treat both donors and international NGOs treat Palestine as a place suffering from a a humanitarian crisis, as if Palestine was struck by a hurricane or a tsunami. So they provide what they call an emergency relief, emergency response, helping the Palestinians, providing that emergency aid. So providing alternative shelter to Palestinians who lose their homes due to home demolition, not to hurricanes, providing legal aid to Palestinians who are prosecuted by the Israeli authorities in the Israeli court system, and and many other such types of aid that treat our situation as a natural disaster rather than a human political disaster. And this is reflected in the projects that they implement here in Palestine and also in the type of projects that they agree to fund in Palestine. So usually the type of projects that they implement is either projects that provide development of infrastructure in, in, in Palestine and within Palestinian communities or capacity building for Palestinians, always treating us as those uneducated savages that we need to de- teach democracy to and human rights to, and we need to build them schools and we need to pave their roads. and. Usually this approach also ignores the political context within which these needs are created. So while we do need them to help with infrastructure, for example, they do not do anything at the same time in order to stop 
the reason behind our need for infrastructure all the time because Israeli the Israeli army bombs our streets and, and ruins and never develops our uh, infrastructure. For example, in Jerusalem, intentional neglect is the name of the game when it comes to how the municipality treats Palestinians in Jerusalem. And so most of the donor projects and also international NGO projects, they simply disregard the political context within which our needs are created and by diagnosing the situation here as a natural disaster rather than a political human maintained disaster then the services they provide the way they look at the situation here is wrong and as a result the aid the help that they are giving first of all does not help us in our political struggle it does not help us Uh, solve the issues here, overcome colonization, occupation, displacement, because they do not tackle that political context of, of colonization. And as a result, also, their help is not sustainable. It's not something that is accumulative. And I can say that the only sustainable thing that they create here and maintain here is our dependency on them as Palestinians. Because if you continue providing alternative shelter to Palestinians who lose their homes due to home demolition, but you never do anything to stop the policy of home demolition, then the people's need for alternative shelter will be there all the time and they will need to provide it all the time. So sometimes some Palestinians look at the intervention by donors and international NGOs as a very selfish one that is actually concentrated on how they maintain themselves, how do they stay alive. If they change the political situation in Palestine, then they will not be needed here anymore. That is definitely one of the points of criticism on the UN involvement uh, in Palestine, for example. And that's interesting, too, because there are a lot of expats. Uh, Expats are, of course, Westerners that live or immigrate outside of their country um, because they, even though basically they're immigrants, but they're coming here as non-Palestinians. They're taking up residency in typically Palestinian neighborhoods and they're bringing their Western salaries into this country. They're spending thousands of dollars more on their living expenses that are displacing Palestinians in East Jerusalem. And, And I find it very fascinating because I was sitting with Um, a woman just uh, last night from um, one of the big families here and and she was just talking about how when her daughter was in the school um, the American school here in Beit Hanina that all a lot of her classmates were children from Western families Um, and these families were spending twelve thousand twenty thousand dollars a year to send their kids to these uh, these high schools they're making incredible wages off of our oppression How does that one, like, uh, displace Palestinians, capable Palestinians from our own marketplace to, um, in, in these positions of NGOs? And also, how is that literally raising our, our prices and, and outpricing and gentrifying our, our, our uh, Palestinian neighborhoods, both in Jerusalem and in other occupied cities? In general, in Palestine, what you, the way you described it is very accurate. So, you know, I mentioned capacity building for Many decades now, international NGOs come here to, as I said, educate those primitive people here. They come here to build our capacities. They do a lot of trainings 
uh, for Palestinians here. But then when they are hiring, suddenly these capacities are not found in Palestine and they need to import capacities from their own homelands. Uh, so the capacity building itself is an illusion. I really don't know what capacity exactly they are building here among Palestinians, but then they always need to import their employees from their own home countries. That's why I think also that the NGO system in general is just business opportunity for countries around the world to come to our uh, colonized country, to build their own careers as individuals. They build their careers here. They receive double and triple our salaries and they uh, receive allowances for rent. They receive cars or allowances for having cars. So they have a huge income in comparison to the Palestinians. And so first of all, yes, they come here within a system that does not help us solve our problem because it treats it as a natural disaster rather than a political disaster. So using the the wrong toolbox, but also while using the wrong toolbox and not creating any change on the long term in the political situation, they also add more trouble to the Palestinians here, taking away jobs that could be ours, that are not given to Palestinians, but giving to more capable and quote-unquote capable uh, internationals. And jobs that could be ours, just because I know that that rings a tone in America. It's very different in here because, like you were saying, their salaries are two, three times larger than our own. My father doesn't have a job. My brother doesn't have a job. But they don't have opportunities. You know, I have so many friends. My friend that, you know, I was hanging out with last night. She's been looking for a job for four years. She speaks impeccable English. She could work in any of these NGOs. She's an incredibly capable woman. But again, these opportunities aren't available for Palestinian residents. So when we're talking about taking our jobs, I mean, they're actually coming here specifically to work in positions to organize and develop our country on our behalf in a very Orientalist manner. And they're doing it making salaries that if it was um, given to Palestinians, three people could be employed or two people could be employed versus this one bourgeois westernized individual coming in and living this kingdom lifestyle on our, um, you know, due to our own Uh, political misfortune and historical misfortune. No, thank you for the addition. I do uh, uh, agree that it's there is a severe lack in jobs for Palestinians, especially if you look at Jerusalem, for example, unemployment rates are reaching 10% and 11%. People that are unemployed, uh, poverty among Palestinians in Jerusalem is 80%. So 80% of the population, Palestinian population in Jerusalem lives below the official poverty line. And these people could use those jobs. Palestinians do not want to do leave Jerusalem. People here feel very strongly about their steadfastness and sumud in, in Jerusalem because the, the Israeli authorities have a very direct and clear goal of displacing as many Palestinians as possible. They have designed the whole reality we live in Jerusalem leads and contributes to the displacement and ethnic cleansing of Palestinians from the city in very bureaucratic ways. And so for Palestinians in Jerusalem, it is even more so it's more crucial the the foreign presence in our neighborhoods and taking our homes. When I was looking for an apartment to rent 
five years ago, I called a landlord in Shu'fat, a Palestinian landlord. And I said that I am interested in the apartment they have for rent. And he said, oh no, sorry, I prefer foreigners. Why does he prefer foreigners? Because he knows I cannot afford $2,500 rents while someone working in the UN definitely can afford that. So they prefer to have foreigners to rent their homes because then it's a higher income for them. So that's also one of those downsides of what, what that presence means for us as Palestinians here is that they take away those opportunities in, in, in our neighborhoods. I've also heard that a lot of these, uh, the restrictions in East Jerusalem does not allow like Arab homes to be more than four stories. Yes, it is correct. You cannot build higher than four stories. So the maximum is four stories. It's just one example example of how Israel uses its legal system and it, its laws to make the oppression of Palestinians and displacement of Palestinians from Jerusalem legal. So they use it. It's the, it's the Israeli law that, is, that has been implemented in Jerusalem since 1967 that uh, allows them to prevent Palestinian families or Palestinian residents from building tall buildings. That's why if you take a walk around any Palestinian neighborhood in Jerusalem, you will feel like you're walking inside a a big village. There are many smaller apartment buildings and many small houses. It's part of the, the restriction on Palestinian presence in Jerusalem. And that restriction is not applied to the western part of the city, correct? No, it's not. There are many tall buildings on the western side of the city. So I I just want to connect this because, you know, we're hearing a lot right now about how the U.S. president recently came out saying that he was recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of the state of Israel. And this is a recognition of Israel's annexation of East Jerusalem after it conquered the city in 67 war from the Jordanians. Israel has claimed in the last 40, 50 years that the city is one city and it's a natural city that uh, there is no divide between the two sides, yet there is uh, different legal applications between the east and western part of the city. Uh, and, and the city is very much a divided, segregated, and occupied city that is not part of the general Israeli, you know, the historical body of Israel that was captured during their occupation in '48. Since Trump's announcement that the U.S. is going to recognize or recognizes Jerusalem as the capital of the state of Israel and that they're going to move the embassy to Jerusalem, a huge storm started, especially on the media, especially by world leaders, our own political leadership, the PA and international NGOs and United Nations agencies. Everybody was expressing concern for the peace process, for the two-state solution, for the situation in, in the stability in the region. And people were acting on that level as if Jerusalem has just been occupied two weeks ago, as if Trump's announcement was the actual occupation of Jerusalem. But it's important to see this announcement within the wider political context, a context of continuous history, all U.S. support to the Israeli authorities, to Israel in general, military, financial, and diplomatic support that the U.S. has been given. Not only the state of Israel since 1948, but the Zionist movement for almost a century now or more than a century now. So it's a mistake. It's a mistake to make to see this announcement as a great game changer. It's not a, it's not a game changing uh, move. It's, it's 
just an officializing of a again a history old u.s support to israel the military support that they have given israel in its earlier years it's the financial support that has been not only continuously being given but also growing i mean why is everybody angry with trump for announcing that they recognize jerusalem as the israeli capital while we are not remembering that obama leaving the office raised the amount of money support money that the u.s gives to israel when in up till 2016 it was a 30 billion dollar 10-year program now it is a 38 billion dollar so it's not it's not a surprise that the u.s supports and backs israel up it's actually the most honest that the u.s administration has ever been regarding its opinions and its positions and its actions supporting Israel. The U.S. has been supporting Israel unconditionally when Israel has been controlling both sides of Jerusalem since 1967, treating it all as one one city, one capital, and the U.S. has been supporting that. So it's not a surprise that the U.S. president says we recognize Jerusalem as the capital. It, it is it's a crisis for those who still believe in that discourse of international law and human rights. Because when you, when you talk about international law as the framework of changing the situation here, when you talk about what's happening in Palestine in terms of a conflict rather than settler colonialism, then uh, of course you will feel in a crisis right now with Trump's announcement because it actually means that the whole discourse you've been adopting and using went bankrupt, that it's actually declared bankrupt right now. Because for tens of years, Palestinians have been forced to know international law by heart, to be able to cite and reference Geneva Convention and other UN resolutions. We've been writing so many reports, citing and referencing all the time what uh, laws and conventions Israel is breaking. This hasn't led to any change. And now Trump comes up and says, well, I'm just going to make it all very official and all out there. And I think that those, those are the ones that are feeling the crisis, including, as I said, our own Palestinian Authority. But if you talk about this announcement with people on the ground in, in Palestine and in Jerusalem, especially, they will say, well, what has changed? Nothing has changed but the fact that it is being made official right now. So I think that it should be seen within the wider context, historical, political context of continuous US support, and then it's not a surprise. At the same time, it's important to say that it's a very good opportunity for us as, for us as Palestinians to remind everybody of this uh, wider context and also to remind everybody that the protests, the anger in the streets today regarding Trump's announcement is not because it is a very dramatic announcement as much as it is another phase in our continuous confrontation with the Israeli colonization. There are angry protests and people going out and confronting the occupation, the occupation authorities and occupation forces all the time. It did not just start with Trump's announcement. The fact that media kind of takes the light from here for certain, a certain time and then comes back and creates this dramatic feeling doesn't mean that these uh, developments have been happening on the ground all the time. It's a continuous confrontation. <laughs> We 
بدنا نعيش عيالنا واللي باع حاله وباعها واللي جاع مع هدراها واللي باع حاله وباعها واللي جاع مع هدراها مالكم ومالها فالها وحالها مالكم ومالها فالها وحالها صامدة ولو عارية صامدة ولو عارية Hey y'all, thanks for listening to Olive Oil and Time as we sat down with Feirouz Sharkawi with Grassroots al In this episode, we discussed the impact that NGOs have on Palestinian society, as well as the manner in which individuals that represent these organizations are gentrifying and displacing Palestinians from available housing in occupied East Jerusalem. This episode is part of a two-part series. In episode two, we'll be sitting back down to discuss alternative fundraising methods that Grassroots Al-Quds uses so that their programming is not affected by the constraints placed on Palestinian organizing by international aid organizations. Thanks for listening in, and we hope you enjoy the music playing us out by Sabrine, a Palestinian folk group that became popular in the 1980s. Bye, y'all. I'm